What's going on everyone? Real quick disclaimer here. While the first few episodes are going to be very decab centric, uh, just as a byproduct of myself and many other of the guests working for DeKalb County, um, our thoughts, views, opinions, and everything else are not the counties. This is not an official county podcast, um, and I just don't want anybody to get the idea that it is. So, with that being said, just remember these are all our own thoughts and views and do not reflect the county at all. Um, yeah, hope you all enjoy the show. Thanks. You know, first of all, being a fireman is, is not what you do. It's what you are. It's deep down inside of you. And it's it's not really learned. It becomes a natural calling. Uh, but, you know, to be the true Jake of Jake's, that person that never backs down, no matter how hot it is, no matter how nasty it is, no matter how cold it is, you never hear them, you know, complaining about the that part of the job, you know, that's your own. You, they just get in there and get it done. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the first recording of the Smoke Eater podcast. I'm here with my first guest, um, retired Captain Robbie Robertson of the Cap County Fire Department. Uh, Cap, how you doing today? Doing great. Thank you for inviting me. It's you know, it's great to be here and look forward to sharing some of the history of the department with you. Awesome. We can't wait. Well, why don't you uh, just uh, kind of give us a little overview of yourself and uh, we can get started from there. All right. Sounds great. Uh, I was hired in uh, 1977, 12, 19 of 77, went to three months of recruit school. When I come out of recruit school, I was fortunate enough to be assigned to station seven, engine seven, the war wagon. And when that happened, I didn't realize it, but that set the tone for the rest of my career. Being one of the busiest houses in the county, uh, it really, with the good crews, it really helped build the camaraderie and the fun. But with that, we'll get into that later. Uh, I stayed at Station 7 until I was promoted to driver in uh, 82. It was, uh, got very lucky the first time I took the test. I came out number 13 and was promoted. Um, even back then, times uh, things were a little ho hokey with transfers. There were two openings for a driver at seven, but they transferred me to 18. So I went to station 18 for six months, got my rear mount ladder license and begged and pleaded and got back down to the south side and was assigned to station six, uh, currently where station 26 is. Uh, stayed there for about 10 years, uh, went to 20 for nine months, got my tiller ladder license, and then transferred out of 20 back to seven as a driver. Stayed at seven till I made lieutenant in 97. Um, then I was transferred to station, then I transferred to station 16 under the bid system, which, which we'll talk about that later as well, and stayed there six months and then came back to seven as a lieutenant. Stayed there as a lieutenant until 2000 when I made captain, uh, bid and transferred to the new station six and stayed there for a little over a year and then transferred back to seven as a captain and retired out of seven with 30 years of service. Uh, one of my great accomplishments early on in my career 
was becoming a Georgia smoke diver, uh, smoke diver number 142. That was in 1981. The, um, along with, you know, being a fireman, working up through the ranks and promotion, reorganized uh, DeKalb Professional Firefighters, Local 1492 in 1991, served as president for one year and then served as secretary treasurer for 13 more years. And then was elected for the president's position of the Professional Firefighters of Georgia, which is a state organization of the International Association of Firefighters, and served in that position for about 10 years. Uh, at the end of those careers, when I retired, I was elected or appointed president emeritus of the Professional Firefighters of Georgia and secretary treasurer emeritus of DeKalb Professional Firefighters. Along and during that tenure, uh, after becoming a union officer, they pushed me to run for the DeKalb County Pension Board, which I did. And I served as the employee representative, one of the employee representatives for six years. After retiring, I was elected by the retirees and in 2008, and I'm still serving in that uh, position to now. So I guess total, I've got about 45 years of service with DeKalb County, uh, starting with the fire department and continuing to work and help the brothers and sisters uh, secure their pension for the future. But I know that's a little long-winded, but, you know, that's kind of gives my background of, you know, where I came from. Oh, yeah. And I think it's the, uh, you know, it's the perfect background. Um for those that don't know, uh, DeKalb County is a, um, that's a mid to large size department in, uh, in Georgia, right outside of Metro Atlanta. Um, one of the busier departments in the Southeast and in the country with a, uh, significant, a, a significant amount of fire duty. Um, Cap, you, um, well, you and I met, well, through the department, uh, you know, a little insider trading here. I uh, I also currently work for DeKalb County um, at Station 6, which is in the same battalion as Station 7, and where Captain Robertson, uh, you know, cut his teeth at for a long time. Uh, we met, what, on a, really, it was kind of random, wasn't it? Um, I was just looking for some history of the department or something along those lines, and we just That's kind correct. of got to talking, and We've been talking pretty much, you know, every other day ever since. So, um, and we, you know, we shared pictures to give you a lot of the history of the department mm -hmm. and specifically about station six and, yep. you know, a lot, you know, how, how the department changed over the decades. And it's, it's a much different department now than it was then, uh, you know, the fire volume is up, the fire duty is up. We had a lot of fires, during my my career, but I believe now you guys are having even more. But you know, as you and I have talked, one of the most important things is you know sharing the history of the department and the different companies because many people just retire and move on, and a lot of that history is lost and will be mm -hmm. lost forever. And you've done a very good job of documenting and sharing and you know, uh, making copies of the pictures and putting the, you know, the history along with the pictures. And, you know, it's worked out well. I, I love the job. 
I've always loved the job. I love the department. And, you know, I love the guys. I love the brothers and sisters. Always have. You know, it's it's the best job on the face of the earth. And it's the best kept secret on the face of the earth. But the truth is, you've got to love it to enjoy it. It's not just a paycheck. You know, it's what you are deep down inside. You will always, once you're a fireman, you will always be a fireman. And that's all there is to it. But you have to truly love it and love it hard. That's the truth. I mean, it's, it's certainly not just a paycheck. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of easier things that somebody could be doing to make a lot more money. So um, you, uh, you actually touched on one of the, the big reasons that I um, wanted to make this podcast. The, like you, like you said, a lot of times guys just retire and all that is gone. Um, You know, you touched on the trying to, keep the history the tradition um, and the lessons learned, try to keep that going and pass it down through the lines. You know, I was fortunate enough to have met you, which you were able to tell me a whole bunch of stuff about my company that a lot of people had forgotten or, you know, I never thought to talk about. Um, we've been able to revamp that around the house because, you know, I think that the, the tradition and remembering, remembering where you came from um, is incredibly important in this job so um yeah that that's one of the the big things here is we're we're kind of in the middle of that cycle where we are getting ready to lose um like 80 90 percent of our seniority in my department alone um our department um and i know that that cycle is usually kind of a natural a, a, a national trend so the idea behind the podcast is just to get to talk to um, seasoned firemen such as yourself that are into the job, care about the job, care about the tradition, um, have fought a good amount of fire, you know, run a good amount of calls and just um, try to just, you know, have in a recorded format uh, your lessons, your stories, your history so that we're going to be able to pass this along to the next probie you know, the next guy that comes to station six or, you know, I hope my hope is, is to um, start with the guys that are getting ready to retire here in the cab that, you know, brought me up, uh, get their stuff, you know, locked down. And then once we start kind of running out of people branching out from there and, um, you know, maybe going national with it, whatever we can think of. Cause there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good lessons to be learned out there. And, uh, um, I'm excited for it, uh, but I, I thought for sure that you were you were going to be the best man to to start off to start this one off. Um, real quick, uh, if you want to tell the viewers, you actually have uh, a bit of a uh, even more direct tie to DeKalb County uh, than rather than just working in Station Six, uh, Station Seven. Uh, you actually grew up in that area, correct? I did. Uh... I was born and raised at Candler and Glenwood. Uh, I went to elementary school on at Tony Elementary on Candler Road. Went to high school at uh, Columbia High School for two years on Columbia Drive. Then transferred, we moved, I transferred to Southwest DeKalb High School uh, where I graduated in 75. I'm telling my age now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, actually right across the street from 
Fort Glencoe, old station seven is where my pediatrician used to be. And, you know, it, it gave me a good insight. I saw the County change. I saw the County grow. Uh, I saw, you know, the fire volume continue uh, to grow and we knew that it was going to continue to grow because the structures were getting older. Um, but, you know, you saw the cycle, it cycles around. Everything is a cycle in our business. Uh, give it long enough and the same thing that happened in the past will happen again because yeah. the fire service specifically um, people don't branch out and really learn new things they only do what the people before them taught them to do um, you know example being transfers well we've always transferred people so we need to continue transferring people but you go to bigger departments and you know, a person would come in there as a probie and maybe stay at that same house their entire career. And, you know, it's a good thing because you build that camaraderie and they, you know, you learn so much. Um, but yeah, I was, you know, I was born and raised in DeKalb County. I like DeKalb County. I, you know, I, I, I believe in it. And if I didn't, and I didn't care, I wouldn't fight so hard on the pension board to make sure that, the administration takes care of the current employees as well as the retired employees. Uh, yeah, Cap, if you just want to, we I have a um, a list of questions that I sent you that we can get to, but if you want to start off um, just kind of telling us how the department was when you got on and how it changed uh, from the time you left and kind of what led to those changes. Yeah, all years. You know the. The thing that we don't realize is when I first got on the job on a single family dwelling fire, you only got two engines. And on those two engines, there were only three people each. And if you had a multifamily, you would get three engines and one truck or back then a ladder. Uh, there were only two ladders in the county at the time, ladder one and ladder 20. Um, and each one of those had three people on them. And you very seldom, no matter how bad it was, could get a help call on a single family dwelling. If you called for one, you might get one engine if the chief really felt sorry for you. But um, and on an apartment fire, it really didn't matter how bad it was burning. You were only going to get two engines on a help call. And that was it. Wow. And, you know, as time went on, that changed people. Again, like I said earlier, people only uh operated off what they were taught before them so that's what that's what they did they didn't want to look bad by having to call so many people yeah. after every fire you shoveled out the entire building you left it cleaner than it was before you got there and i've even mopped out houses after a fire with a mop bucket and mop that is insane but as time went on that changed and um early around I would say 1979, early 1980, because we were so short on truck companies, um, some of the guys up at Station 4 in Shambly started pushing truck company operations. And it took a while, and they started training, and then you, they came up with operating an engine as a truck company, Engine 4, or Truck 4 as, a, as it was renamed, Truck 9, and Truck 7. You responded to every fire in your district, and Truck 7 went all over the uh, south and east end of the county 
A lot of times you got there after it was over with, but you were a good manpower unit. It's and, like the current Heavy Rescue 24. Right. It's the same thing here as in, you know, FDNY. A lot of times by the time the rescue companies get there, the bulk of the fire is knocked down, but you still have that, you know, manpower to search and check for extension, et cetera. But um, then, then when we got trucks operated, you got three pieces of equipment. You got, you know, two engines and a truck on a, on a house fire. And, you know, it progressed. Tom Brown, Chief Brown, he came in from the city of Atlanta and kind of opened things up with a different uh, insight because Atlanta operated different than the cab. Mm-hmm. And then we started boosting the amount of power, uh, manpower that was sent to calls. Um, but as you and I have talked, you know, a lot of the changes that came specifically in the third battalion, uh, came from different trips to New York city. Mm-hmm. And, um, captain, uh, Bill Wilmire, big Luke as everybody calls him and, uh, Bill Newley, we went to New York, uh, in 81, late 80, early 81, because we'd went to a high rise class up in Cobb County. And it was taught by operations chief uh, O'Rourke from New York, from FDNY, and battalion chief Grimes and ran out of 54-engine Ford truck in New York. And after the class, you know, we were talking to him and said, you know, we'd like to see how you guys operate. They said, come on up. So we did about three months later. That was one of the biggest eye-opening experiences of my entire career seeing how cool, calm, collected they operated. You may pull up on a five-story abandoned building, flames showing out every window. Nobody was in a hurry. They were just relaxed. They were cool. They were calm. And you know, they would explain to you why they did it, why they operated that way. And you know, we were we were very, very lucky to get insight. And we, you know, we came back from that trip and um Part of that trip was how the Georgia Firefighters Burn Foundation got started. It started out as the Cab Firefighters Burn Foundation because that was one of Big Luke's big pet issues. He wanted to uh, start a uh, skin bank. He wanted to have our own burn foundation to take care of the brothers when they got hurt. And so they, we formed the DeKalb, uh Firefighters Burn Foundation. Then it became the Metro Atlanta, and then it became the Georgia Firefighters Burn Foundation over the years. But on that first trip, we spent about seven days. We spent it with a 54-engine, four-truck, Battalion 9 in Manhattan, 231-engine, 120-truck in Brooklyn, 69-engine in Harlem, Lieutenant Milshaw. He was a fabulous guy. 75-engine, 33-truck in the Bronx, and one half of a tour with Rescue One. But one of the biggest things, looking back, not knowing what was the future would behold, was we actually did a training exercise in the World Trade Center. And mm-hmm. I got pictures of us in the elevator banks and with Rescue One, you know, straight lines throughout the building. It was just an amazing thing looking back from that I mean, that day. Yeah, I've seen those pictures. Those are, that was very cool. And the, um, but we brought back a lot of insight and we implemented that into CAP. Uh, and it was a hard sell. It took a long time to get it done. Like some of the conversations you and I have had mm-hmm. on engine six, we started reloading wet hose. 
prior to that day or that trip, if you got hose wet, you stacked it in front of the station, the oncoming shift came in and washed it and put it in the hose dryer. There was no wet hose put on a rig. <laughs> what was the reasoning behind that? Was it afraid it was going to get mildewy or, I mean, like, like what, what was the point of that? I think it was, I think you nailed it, it because prior early seventies, during the seventies, there was a lot of cotton jacketed hose. And okay. I think we were worried about it mildewing, but by the time we started doing it, everything was polyester. So it wasn't going to mildew. It wasn't going to get, yeah. uh, you know, I told you as a rookie, I, I was just beyond shocked because one night the driver made a mistake and left his tank fill valve open on a job and it, the water gushed out and wet all of the hose in the hose bed. When we come back to the station, we had to unload the entire engine and put all fresh hose on it. I'm like, why? It just got wet. It's made, it's, it's literally hose, right? Like it's made to do that. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, so times oh, changed and it, you know, it yeah. took some fighting. And along with that, um, we, we always pulled up to a structure uh, you know, you didn't back into a structure fire. You pulled up in the street and you were pulling the hose off the back of the rig and then trying to stretch it to the house. So we mm -hmm. put cross lay. So, you know, the old Mac, all they kept in that cross lay area were tools. It had two stainless steel plates on the end and they kept tools. So we started out with making a two and a half inch cross lay, put 200 foot, of two and a half in there and use that as a, a cross lay but we didn't pull the two and a half that often because we were so short staffed. The, we decided, decided one day, I said, look, why don't we put two uh, inch and three quarter pre-connects or you would pre-connect them because you pumped them, put them to the two and a half inch outlets on the pump panel on each side. So mm -hmm. half of that hose bed, you would, you zigzagged it in there to come off one side of the engine. And then the other side, you zigzagged it to come off the other side of the engine. And that's how the cross slays got started. And as time went on, when they started ordering the new rigs, they started ordering cross lays on because they saw how much better it worked. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just a lot of that stuff came from, you know, FDNY and seeing how other departments operate. If you never venture outside your own environment, you never know how other people do things. I'm not saying yeah. that we were bad, that we were the best, but you still learn from everyone. You know, sitting around a firehouse table in any state, in any city, you learn something. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen that you you learn, you know, you learn new new tricks of the trade like you're talking about. And I've also seen that the, the commonalities between all of us throughout the entire country, big or small departments, it's, it's insane. We're all dealing with the same issues and the same people that don't want to change, the same, you know, pay issues, the same staffing issues, you know, it's it, it's really uh, kind of amazing how similar, no matter where you are in this country, that things really are. You, like you said, you get kind of caught up in your own bubble, um, especially, you know, not to sound um, arrogant or anything like that, but especially coming from a department like ours where we just do the job so much more uh, than a lot of departments around us as far as fight and fire, that sort of thing, running, you know, serious med medical calls um that you do tend to get uh kind of trapped in your own little speed or sphere of influence so to speak and that i think that there's a good thing to it because we have a culture and uh we uh 
we, uh, you know, we're able to bring up people in house very easily. Um, and the way that we do things, I mean, it, it works pretty well. Um, Which but I can see where, but having that, not having that outside influence as far as, you know, being willing to learn and take on new things from new companies, I can see how that would, you know, stagnate us a little bit. Um, and keep things from like, I mean, all these things that you're talking about right now are things that guys like me who, you know, came up well after you made, you helped make all these changes. You know, we don't even, we don't even think about them. Like it's just second nature to us, but so I can see how we might be kind of hamstringing ourselves by not getting out there more often. Uh, So hopefully. Yeah. Just like your portable radios, everybody has a portable now. Mm-hmm. Back early on, only the captain had a portable, and they never took it in a fire. It stayed on the rig. <laughs> the portable was only used for inspection. So if you were away from the rig while you were out doing inspections, you know you could hear a call come in. And we, you know, we fought long and hard getting some of the older captains, especially when we started the truck companies. Look, you need to have the radio cap because we're going. You know, if we get cut off, we get trapped. We're going to be operating independently. You know, you know, we need to be able to call for help. And, you know, it was just a slow process and they were, you know, very open to changing. But it was it was a hard sell because this is the way they had always done it. Uh, An example being I know I'm jumping around a lot, but an example being when I first come on the job, uh, of course, we were wearing day boots, long coats. uh, But your breathing apparatus was kept in the compartment in a box, in the breathing apparatus box. And when you got to a fire, uh, you, you as a firefighter, whatever line the officer told you to pull, you pull that line and your job was to go in and put out as much fire as you could while the officer was getting on their breathing apparatus or BA and, uh, they would come in and relieve you. And then you would go back to the rig, get your BA on and come back in. I'm like, that's a lot of back and forth there. So I just got where I quit wearing it. You know, you just went yeah. in there, you fought fire, and they would come in. You'd say, I ain't giving up the nozzle. You stayed low <laughs> and, and ate the, you know, ate the carpet to get fresh air. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good lessons learned, and there were a lot of good officers. Captain Frank Smith was my first captain, and he was one hell of a firefighter, and he was a good teacher. Uh, I remember a job we had. Uh, it was rocking over. I saw Jake's Trail, and we were on Truck 7, and we were first due. And it was when I forced the front doors, fire just blew out and I was fighting it going in. And he came in to, uh, he got his BA on and come in to relieve me. And I learned a valuable lesson. I shut the nozzle down to give it to him. It eat us up before we could get the nozzle back open. And I said, you know, after it was over with, all he said was, did you learn a good lesson there, son? I'm like, yes, sir. And that was all that was ever said about it. You know, instead of just chewing you out and making you feel like an idiot, you learn a valuable lesson and nobody really got hurt bad. But, you know, there were some good officers back then as well as there are now. But, you know, the department has changed and, you know, it got a lot more firepower and uh, a lot more um, tools to use. Yeah, it's funny that that you say that because when you were talking about what um, y'all originally had on a single family dwelling job or or even a multifamily, I was sitting there thinking, you know, we you guys had what two engines at, at most on a single family dwelling and With six two guys. engines in a truck on a on a 
uh, apartment job. Whereas now, you know, our single family dwelling response currently is, I think, four engines, a truck, two trucks, um, the heavy, uh, or the hazmat if you're up north, um, a squad, two battalion chiefs, you know, two ambulances, um, an air truck, you know, so it's, it's, we're able to just go in and pretty much overwhelm any situation. I was actually talking with a guy the other day who was, uh, he started off up north, uh, I can think of like Maine or something along those lines, but he was talking about how his buddy had like a five alarm fire the other day. And I just look at him and I go, holy crap, five alarms? Forgetting that an alarm up north is usually just like a single apparatus, you know, uh, because a, a second alarm in cab is going to, that's going to be half the freaking department, you know already on there so it's, it's kind of amazing how in a relatively short amount of time things have changed from having basically nobody on scene to now we actually sometimes we have too many people um but i'd rather have the problem having more uh resources than not enough and that's a good advantage to have i mean anytime you you know i always used to say you know i can keep pushing this radio button and people will keep coming mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter, even if we run out of them, you know, you got Atlanta, you got uh, all of the surrounding counties that you got automatic and mutual aid with. So you're going to continually get people no matter what happens. And, you know, DeKalb has been very, very fortunate over the years uh, not to have had any more line of duty uh, deaths than, than they've had. And, you know, I think it's because DeKalb has always been an aggressive department. Uh, it gets in there and gets the job done with, and, you know, with good firemen, with good training, you know, that they know what they're doing, but, you know, kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, even simple stuff. And this is really a big cycling issue. You know, we, we come back and we push the t-shirt issue. We wanted to wear t-shirts, company t-shirts, company pride. And Station 6 and the Screaming Eagle was the first company in the county to have a company T-shirt. And it was tooth and nail to get approval to wear those. And, you know, finally they would let you wear them. And then a new battalion or a new deputy or a new fire chief would come in and say, oh, you got to wear a uniform shirt when you go out of the station. Now, the citizens don't care what you're wearing. They just want you to Not be at all. Covered. You know, they could, they could care less. You know, this is all about, you know, people who have lost their direction and need to come up with something to show their power. But then the job shirts came in, you know, came about. And then the county started furnishing T-shirts because they didn't want the company T-shirts. Long, you know, long story short, it's, it was a natural progression, but, you know, things changed and the department is better for it. And, you know, belt buckles was one of the big issues forever and ever, and I'm sure it still is. You can only wear a certain belt buckle because, you know, that was one of the few uh, written reprimands I got for was wearing a union belt buckle. I'm like, okay, that's what you got to worry about. I'm running 5,000 mm-hmm. runs a year. And, you know, we're showing up for work where everybody never calls in sick. And you're worried about my belt buckle. Give me a break. Uh, all, all sorts of stuff, which is, at the end of the day, like you said, the citizens don't care. You know, we could show up in freaking jean shorts and a cutoff shirt. But if we fix their problem, that's all that matters. Um, and then I, I've heard 
you know, what, what they don't care what we're wearing when we're pumping a fire. They don't care what we're wearing into a fire. Honestly, they just want us to save them and put their fire and put the fire out. Like that's all it boils down to. And I get it. You know, you, you gotta have some look of professionality to it, but it's a blue collar job, right? It's always going to be a blue collar job until we get to the point where we're no longer going into some of the most extreme environments on the planet. Um, on a daily basis or, you know, getting covered in dirt, shit, mud, blood, all these things from, you know, seeing some of the worst things that humanity has to offer until that ends, this is going to be a blue collar job. It's just the way it's going to be. And I think, you know, I think you, you, you touched on something good there where people kind of lose, you know, where they came from, so to speak. Speaking of the t-shirts though, you know, the, once again, the the viewers or the listeners, I guess, aren't going to be able to see it. But you're currently rocking one of the uh, one of the first of the I think the first two um, iterations of the Station Six T-shirt. That right. You guys this, brought. This and, is the uh, second one with the screaming eagle on the front of it. The first one was a uh, a complete circle that was completely mm-hmm. silk screened and multicolor. Yeah, and we uh, we thanks to thanks to. You and uh, us meeting up, we were actually able to recreate those shirts from your pictures, and they have been a massive hit. You know, I'm I'm particularly thankful that we were able to bring back because you know, as you know, the 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 pride. Uh, I think the the company pride. Well, I think it is important to have you know pride in the department and everything like that. I think that people might miss out on the fact that the company pride you know, having a, a, a well-run, a well-respected and, um, you know, a good reputation with your company and having the pride in that company, um, I think it makes better firemen. And I think it also creates a connection to the, you know, to your house. You get that connection. And I think ultimately what keeps people at an organization is having a connection to it. And as a result of having a connection to that house, being able to have pride in what you do, have pride in your rig, have pride in how you work, um, have and just enjoy coming to work every day. Um, that, and, you know, I guess a macro sense does lead to um, long-term, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, we're able to keep more people as an organization as a whole. So while I think the, departmental pride is definitely important and and most people i know are pretty proud to work for DeKalb county um i think them finally i guess allowing so to speak people to really focus on the company pride um actually helps the organization in the long run because that's really what's going to keep people um and you know everywhere has those staffing issues we all have the um the turnover issues you know, uh, so if we're able to connect people to the job and connect them to the company, see what they came from, get to still do the job, so to speak. Um, I think a lot of that's going to going to, you know, help help us keep people. Obviously, the money is important, but let's be real. None of us became firemen to get rich, so to speak. You hit on a great topic. It was one of the things I had written down as far as like tradition within mm-hmm. the department was one of your questions. And, you know, for me, well, it doesn't matter what department it is anywhere in the nation or world, you know, the leather lids was one of the biggest things 
you know, we fought it back and forth over the years. Uh, I'm sorry if, you know, any of our listeners in the future say, well, they're talking about DeKalb, DeKalb, DeKalb. But that's what I know. That's mm-hmm. what that's what I've dealt with my whole career. But, you know, I got my first leather lid directly from Carnes in 1979. I paid eighty six dollars for it. Brand no shit. Year. You paid eighty six dollars for that. Eighty six dollars right wow. out of the box. Yeah, uh, for for our listeners out there, real quick, Cap. Uh, for our listeners out there, currently, as of today, which is uh, we're recording this on September twenty fifth, twenty twenty three. I'm pretty sure the price for a New Yorker is somewhere around two grand. So that uh, that's insane, Cap. <laughs> but you know why I got that lid? I didn't know anything about it as a young fighter. Mm-hmm. I've only been out in the field a year. One of the senior guys, Big Luke. He said, yeah, man, you got to get your leather lid. They're the best helmet ever. I'm like, where do I order it? Yep. It took about nine months to get it after I ordered it. But boom, there it came. And but back to what you were talking about with the company pride. Mm-hmm. You've got the insert uh, with your company number in there. None of the county's helmets had inserts at that time. They were the plastic MSA thin helmets with the zero liners in them. And it just said DeKalb Fire on the front of it. So we started getting the inserts and over a period of time, the county said, you know, that's a pretty good idea. We started, they started getting the inserts mm-hmm. and, and I say over a period of time, probably 20 years. Um, and things don't move quickly. <laughs> and then they, uh, you know, they started getting, when you got transferred to a new company, you got the new insert, et cetera, et cetera. But if we got transferred, we bought our own inserts mm-hmm. to put it, but the leather lid, you know, it's one of the was one of the biggest things they tried to go with the turtle helmets Ugh. and nobody liked them. And then because a lot of the guys were wearing the leather, they went to the eight eighties, mm-hmm. Carnes eight eighties. And, you know, they were okay. You know, they were still plastic. My old saying was I'd rather be dead than have plastic on my head. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. The and, county tries to take away our plat or our leathers. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I could say. <laughs> and then we went to the one. 1000s and you know again they were but the county you know got antsy you know they always get antsy over safety like every 10 years mm-hmm. and uh they came and said well everybody's got to wear it so the old uh five a's you got to have an n6 a that has mm-hmm. the dome in it. it can't be the beige dome it has to be the gray dome so you know me i'm like i'm not, not gonna buy another leather because mine's got a beige dome in it. I got some light gray spray paint and sprayed inside the, the dome and the chief come around and says, it's gray. He goes, okay, that was it. Yep. Yeah, how are they going to know any different? You know, right. You know, prove <laughs> it but you know, with that, I've always believed, you know, company pride, but I've always believed the way to ruin a good fireman that's dedicated, that shows up for work is detail them off all the time and transfer them. If a fireman gets to a house that they like, it doesn't matter if it's busy, if it's slow, it doesn't matter. They will perform at that house. They will show up for work because they're happy. You trans transferring people around is the quickest way to break morale mm-hmm. and ruin good firemen. You'll chase mm-hmm. them away quicker doing that than you will any other way. Even, even more so than money. If you put them somewhere where they're unhappy, they're like, the heck with this i'm out of here yeah why, why would i do this and be unhappy at the same time you know i mean like, like i said earlier there's 
there's plenty of jobs out there that are way freaking easier and you can make a lot more money, you know, but one of the things that we have is what I call it, you know, they're intangible benefits, but the happiness factor right there, I think it says a lot. And I think too, that that's one of the reasons why when you see people leave a place like the cab, uh, a lot of times they're back, you know, within a couple of years, uh, like it's usually when they go to other departments because they realize, Oh, money's not everything, you know? Um, well, and if it's your house, you spend your own, your own money there to make it better. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're willing to do more, if you just know you're going to be there a year or two years and then you can go to another sterile environment, you don't, you don't put forth any effort, but if you know, you're going to be there till you ask to leave or get promoted out, you're going to be, you're going to put forth a bigger effort in my opinion. Oh and yeah. That's why, you know, we, when chief Perez came from my, Metro Dade, they had a bid system for transfers, mm-hmm. meaning if you saw an opening somewhere, you put in a letter to go there and based on your seniority, you got it. And um, they didn't move anybody out to put other people in only when a vacancy became available or promotions became up. And we had that. And, you know, everybody was happy. Everybody was going where they wanted to go. They were working where they wanted to work and they were happy. And that's what you see in those uh, Northern departments that you brought up was, you know, these guys come and they're assigned to a house and they're there their whole career and they enjoy it. You know, they're together, they're a family. And, you know, some of the departments specifically in the South don't understand that. Mm-hmm. They don't understand that camaraderie, but you know, the leather lids is one of the biggest uh, traditions that I would like to never, ever see go away. It, they keep saying, you know, safety, safety, safety. Well, you know, we were talking earlier about the BAs and the, the cases in the compartment. You know, we used to strap up, put them up on the motor cows of the, of the rigs and then mm-hmm. uh, strap them in the front seat of the rig. And then we finally got the breathing apparatus in the back of the seats because everybody wanted to have them on en route. And now we flip back because we're somebody came up with the idea that your BA is toxic Mm -hmm. that you're setting up against it. It's uncomfortable. You know, being in a rig is not about being comfortable. It's about having the tools available to speed up every, every second that you can Uh, seconds count when it's a fire fire doubles in size every 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm dead set against the, clean cab situation clean cab yeah it's um eh, i will say it has made the seats more comfortable uh but like you said um i personally don't think our our comfort really really fucking matters you know um uh those seconds do matter we we trained we're now in a clean cab as well and when we got it we went out and we trained on you know this exiting the exiting the rig you know stimulating a job exiting the rig and figuring out what the best ways to get those packs on are um quickly and i mean because it's it's one of those things we work in a place where it is very likely that any second now you know those bells will go off and you're going to go to an apartment job you're going to go to a house job where there's going to be somebody hanging out the window there's going to be somebody in the front yard going hey my mom or my baby or my grandma's in that room right there, you know, point directly where it's at. And those seconds do matter. You know, we're, we got, we have the means to make that environment more tenable. We have the means to survive in that environment. They don't, you know, 
I've gotten, I mean, we've all gotten burned as far as just, you know, throughout life. Whereas, you know, maybe you got too close to a fire or you, you put your hand on a stove or something like that. Um, that doesn't feel good in, in small amounts. Now imagine, you know, it's your grandma or whatever, your loved one in that room. Um, not even just the heat, but the, the freaking the smoke, they don't have any way to breathe in there. And now it, we did, when we did the testing, it takes roughly 25, 30 seconds is the quickest that you can really hop out, get it on correctly, don your face piece, turn it on everything like that. That's about the fastest that you can go. That's a lot of matter. That's a big amount of time when somebody's hanging out the window. Um, you know, I know that there are, some people out there that are like, oh, well, you know, that's those seconds really aren't that important or something like that. But let, let's be honest, it, in a job like this, with that, it, even if they're in there just breathing in all that smoke, the, the brain can only be well, without oxygen for what 10 minutes. Do you think that by the time that that fire's called in, we're dispatched, we get there and we move pretty quickly, especially down to the third battalion, as, as you know, because we're all right on top of each other, so it's a foot race. So we're, we're getting there pretty damn fast, but that still only leaves us with a window of a couple minutes, maybe, for, to keep that survivability up. So I'm right there with you. Um, having those packs, just being able to come out and just go straight to work was, was um, I, I personally believe, more effective and made us uh, – gave us a better chance at making that grab and having that, that – person that was grabbed survive um but even even without the grab in place sort of thing it just it helps for that person in the back especially with us too it's very new usually we're a young department um it gives you less to have to think about because you know i mean with anybody your first few jobs or whatever you're hopping off and you're all sorts of wound up, you know, it's like, oh, it's go time, you know? So the, I feel personally that the less that we have to think about little things like, oh, grabbing your air pack out of the damn compartment or whatever. And the more that we can have everything set up, just ready to go from the get go, the more efficient and the faster we're able to get in there and knock out whatever the problem is. And if it's just something on fire, I mean, you know, you put the fire out, the problem goes away, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think we're very good as it is uh, at getting in quickly and, you know, aggressively, like you were saying earlier and knocking it out of the fire. Um, but it's just one of those things that I guess it's the reality of how things are nowadays because of the uh, anti, uh, you know, cancer culture, which, which I, I understand, you know, we're, we're big proponents of, you know, protecting the brothers and things like that. I just think that that was one of those things that was a little bit overblown. Um, and I know that, or at least I've heard that the the county or the, the department that originally started those clean calves was Miami. Uh, and they don't even, they don't even use them anymore from what I've been told. So that tells you something right there. Um, I just know that for our reality, we're kind of stuck with them for the foreseeable future. Uh, so we, we basically just kind of have to adapt and get good at using them, which I, I think for the most part we have, but it, it definitely has hamstrung things just a little bit. And just but you're fortunate. You're at a busy house, which mm -hmm. most of the houses in the cab are busy now, but you yeah. guys train. If you happen to be at XYZ house, 
they say, ah, oh, we're not going to get a fire. Why do we need to practice this, you know, every two or three shifts just to stay up on it? You know, those people may take 90 seconds or two minutes to get ready to go in and, you know, mm-hmm. get everything set. Uh, you know, we used to, I'm not going to say any companies, but we used to catch jobs and you have the RIC team and they'd be standing in the front yard breathing air. We said, what are you doing? What are you if doing? We need you, you're going to be out of air. Just sitting and, there wasting that yard breathing? Nah. And they were happy as they could be to be standing out there in that yard. Well, and, that's probably where they need to be, let's be honest, Cap. That is true. That is true. <laughs> no complaints on that. But, you know, you had that. And so, you know, the people that train and train regularly are going to be good at it. Especially that, that is true. And I think, I think that that are good. I think that that touches on uh, kind of kind of going back to what you were talking about instilling the company pride and uh, the tradition and everything. Um, and, you know, I think that that touches on it a lot because a, a crew that has pride in themselves and their house is going to do the things needed to be good at this job. And it, I don't think it matters. Like you said, so or somebody that's into the job and enjoys coming to work and everything like that. I don't think it matters if, uh, you know, you're, you're at a house that runs, you know, a hundred calls a year or a house that runs 7,000 calls a year. You see time and time again, that those companies that give a shit, um, perform better. And because they're doing things like training on the little things, they're doing things like having their stuff set up ahead of time. They're expecting fire. They're expecting victims. They're, wanting to be aggressive. They're wanting to be those guys that when the tone does drop and that call does come in, that they're going to be able to get things done. And that one part of it's driven by the fact that they don't want to make the company look bad. They don't want to make their brothers and ancestors, of course, uh, for, for the listeners, I'm going to be referencing uh, firemen and uh, brothers a lot, but I do want to get the disclaimer since it is 2023, that that's an all inclusive term in my mind. Um, I don't care if you're black, white, you know, Mexican, purple, green, man, woman, both, whatever, um, gay, straight, poly, you know, any, any of that crap. I don't give a damn about any of that. As long as you do the job, you give a damn and you do it well, then you're, you're a brother, you're a fireman. That's what being a fireman's fireman is. Um, but I digress. Uh, I, I do think that I just want to throw that out there before, you know, people on social media start getting all up in arms about the fact that I'm not being PC or whatever. Um, <laughs> I don't want to get canceled before this thing even gets off the ground, you know? Uh, you know, but, you know, but I that, do go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. No, I was just saying, but, but I do think that those companies that have that pride and are allowed to have that pride and create their own traditions and, and everything along those lines, um, are the ones that are going to, doesn't matter the call volume, doesn't matter where you're at. They're the ones that are going to be out there getting it done. So I think it's very important. We don't let those traditions die. Now the County as a whole, with the exception of one or two stations, they're all busy. Everybody's busy. They're all running, but it's still, that doesn't make any excuse for not training, not being ready to do it. If you're at a company running 7,000 runs a year or 5,000, 7,000 runs a year, you're having, you know, 10 jobs a month, you know, do you need to train as much as other companies? My opinion, probably not. Probably not. Every day. But, you know, back in the day, 
6th, 7th, the Dirty Third Battalion was having most of the fires, a lot of the fires. And some of the other companies were around and said, oh, well, we're waiting. You know, we're, we're going to have that big high rise. We're going to have this. I said, I'd rather have a hundred one rumors than I had mm-hmm. to wait my whole career for one job. But and Bill Smith and I, Chief Smith, we used to always say it doesn't matter if it's on the 50th floor or the first floor. Once you get to the fire, you're going to do the work. The only time that matters is if you're going to jump out the window. And I don't plan on jumping out the window. Yeah, if you put the fire out, you don't have to go jumping out of windows, right? Exactly. And yeah, that's you know that's what it boils down to. I mean, it's you, the companies that are slower need to train more than the companies that are busier. Yeah. Just because they don't do it as often, not by any fault of their own. Just happens to be where they're assigned to. But that's definitely no excuse to, you know, <clears throat> you sign up to be professional fire firemen. Uh, you should be a, a professional fireman, regardless of where you're at uh, and your call volume. And I completely agree that I would much rather have those, you know, one, two, three rumors than go years without a job. Um, but it's the same, like you said, it's the same thing no matter what what floor the fire is on, what kind of fire it is, you have to be able to do the basics of this job. And you need to be able to do them well, right? Because it's the basics. It's the basic crap that we do every single day. Turning plugs, dropping lines, flowing water, you know, you're knowing your territory, um, knowing how to move hose. Just the very basic, basic things um, that they're not, they're not glitzy, they're not glamorous, but it's the job. Those are the things that put the fire out, that make the grabs, that, you know, save the life, that, you know, save the property. Those are the things every single time that get it done. And um, I, I tried to make it a point here recently of drilling that into anybody that I'm helping to, to teach or whatever, because, you know, especially if you're at a busier company or something like that, it, it is easy to not get complacent, so to speak, but to get so used to doing those basic things that you, you kind of forget about them or you get bored or something along those lines. Um, and it's easy to want to go, you know, learn how to jump out of a 30 story building or your whatever, what, what have you, which those things, somebody doesn't even know how to do that. But it, when your, your basic job is, uh, you know, putting out fires, <laughs> Uh, you, you need to be able to do it well. And um, we can train to do the, the high-rise job. We can train to do all the, the specialty crap out there. But at the end of the day, if your company can't make a hallway, what's what's the point, you know? Um, I wasn't on the job, uh, but it was on Claremont Road right across from the VA early mm-hmm. on, I'd say, in the early 80s. And they caught a job, I think it was on the 17th floor. And as the story goes, uh, they all started out carrying hose packs, irons, all the tools. And the further they got up the steps, this was post-fire, all the tools you found laying, people would drop tools off. They couldn't carry them the rest of the way up. You know, it's a a different animal that you can't train for. Yeah. I will will say I I have – I have all the, the the props 
the world for guys like at, at, in New York or any of these big cities that go to actually go to high rise jobs. Cause uh, holy crap, I don't even like walking up, you know, my, my three story garden apartments, at the top floor with all that crap that we have on. I, I, I know that a lot of times I take elevators up to a certain point, but geez, man, walking up even 17 flights and then having to fight fire. I mean, I, I want to be the one that's there if, if something does catch on fire, obviously, but that's one of those where I'm like, this isn't going to be a fun time, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, and that was one of the things, you know, I keep going back to them, but it, that was one of the things I saw early on, you know, on a lot of these uh, five and seven story tenements they had up there, they had to stretch to the fire floor. There weren't stand pipes, there weren't anything. And, you know, watching, each firefighter have, you know, one to two loops of hose on their arm, uh, meaning links. You know, they were stretching it up the stairs and flaking it out. You know, that, a couple of jobs I saw, they stretched uh, two and a half line from the street to the front door of the uh, tenement. And then they stretched inch and three quarter the rest of the way up. And, mm-hmm. you know, that helped with a lot of our hose lines and the way we started loading stuff to where you could get, you know, at least a full length when you pulled it off to carry to the front door. So you had plenty or, or up the stairs. Mm-hmm. I mean, training is, you know, is a lot, but you, you nailed something. And it was one of the notes that I had written down, be prepared for anything physically and mentally. When I got assigned to truck 18 and to truck 20, they would set the aerial up in the morning and, you know, just make sure everything worked. I'm like, wait a minute. All of us that are assigned here need to be able to be in full turnouts, BA and sling a K-12 over our shoulder and climb to the tip. I said, we need to train for that. If we're going to be on the truck, we need to train for, it. we need to make sure we can do it. And, you know, uh, the captain and lieutenant says, great idea. So every morning we started doing that. A lot of guys decided they didn't want to ride on the truck anymore because whoever was on the truck nope. had to do it. And it worked well, I mean, yeah. but it worked well because it showed every individual within themselves what they needed to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a little guy. I was always small. You know, I'm 5'7", 165 pounds. Mm-hmm. And when I got on the job, I weighed 150 pounds. So I had to push it hard to, you know, to carry the load. And after I got back to six as a driver, I said, you know, wait a minute, you know, you're getting a little older. I started when I was 19. So mm-hmm. uh, I retired when I was 47, but, um, you know, I said, you know, you're getting older, so you need to be in better shape. Started working out. I worked out seven days a week for almost 12 years. Yeah. And then after I made officer, I eased off a little bit, but you know, after I retired, I got back into it. You got to take care of yourself to be able to do the job. I mean, we all see it all over the nation. You know, it, it becomes easy to sit around and eat good meals and, you know, not be ready. We, and we do eat good. That is for sure. <laughs> and that's in every firehouse in the nation. You eat. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, but, you know, you got to train your, your body and it's up to you. Nobody's going to make you. You've got mm-hmm. to do it. You've got to say, you know, I want to be the best I can be because I never want to be that guy that said, well, I couldn't pull him out because I wasn't strong enough. Yep. I want to yep. be that guy. I want to be that guy that said, I got him out. Thank God I trained all those years. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree. The, 
of course, you know, the, the physical fitness aspect of this job, I think is, I wonder almost if it's, um, well, no, because there's plenty of companies that go to a lot of jobs that they, they have big out of shape dudes too. I, I, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know if it's just a tiredness thing or a complacency thing or whatever, but the, the physical fitness aspect of this job, I, that's obviously one that I think, like you said, around the entire country there, it gets kind of ignored after, after basic training. Um, and, and I think that you, you touched on something there as well um, that actually goes back to the training part of things um, and training on the little things and training on doing the basics. Well, I'll say, at least in my experience that, the way that we were taught to do things in the academy, right? We had like five to seven people on a hand line and, you know, every every evolution for everything, you had multiple people and it, it, yeah, it was hard, but you're also being taught the, the bare minimum, the safest quote unquote way to, to do things and all this. And then you get out to the field and you, you learn really fast that, well, shit, you know how many people with times I've ever had more than one person on a hand line with mm -hmm. me. And we're, we're like, we've talked about earlier, we're, we're in a, a relatively resource heavy department. Um, that's just most of the time, if you're on the knob, you're by yourself, not by yourself as far as there's nobody in the house with you, but people, unless you're, you're lucky enough to have a four person crew that day, which, you know, you talked about staffing back in the days, we're still running, mainly with three people a day on our engines. If you have only three people, you're the tailboard. Uh, you got an officer that's, you know, in command doing officer stuff. Uh, and then you got a driver doing driver shit. And that's out in, you know, that's out in the yard doing driver stuff because we, we don't really ghost pump in the cab. Um, but so you have to learn how to manage that hose line by yourself uh, rather quickly. You know, the officer, even if they are inside with you and they're not out in command, you know, they're generally leading from the front, helping you get to where the fire is, dropping rock, uh, all this other stuff. Um, so you you got to, I mean, you learn really quick that, oh, crap, after your first fire. So one, the, the being on the knob is by far the most tiring freaking job on the fire ground. You know, I, I have done just about everything that there is to do on the ground and i can tell you that that is definitely the one that kicks your ass the most i don't know if it's partly because of adrenaline of getting to you know slay the dragon or whatever that's which is fun as shit but your dragon you know essentially if you're using your cross lay your dragon at, at the minimum 50 feet of hose through the house and then that's you know water is what eight point three three uh, pounds per gallon, um, one one section of inch and three quarter, which our stuff is basically almost two inch now. Um, one section is what 15, 16, 17 gallons in that section. Plus, then hopefully you got a driver that knows what the hell they're doing and they're pumping it at the correct pressure. Because if not, you know you're 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 at a minimum getting sixty pounds of nozzle reaction up there at a minimum if they're over pumping you then you're getting a hell of a lot more and you're by yourself after dragging the shit through the darkness through the heat getting caught up on corners getting caught up on couches or whatever else getting tangled up in shit so by the time you even get to the the seat you know 
and actually fighting the fire, you're freaking worn out. And then you got to go do overhaul on top of it. You know, we're wearing th- gear that makes us, most of us, around 300 pounds total. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, hell, I'd rather be your size, honestly, and be 165 than be the 200 or whatever I'm at now. Because, I mean, it's it. It ain't easy work being on the knob there. And that's just one position. Um, and a lot of times, you know, you get done, you go do overhaul, and then you got to go in and, you know, do this and that or the other. And, you know, you're working for a couple hours straight and everything. And then after that, you might get off the rig, go run a couple more calls, and then boom, you got another fire. You got to do it again. Um, so being in shape is definitely, I, I do agree, very important. Um, but going back to the training part of it, learning how to do the basics in the most efficient way possible uh, helps you out tremendously in being able to, you know, do your job well, but also setting and setting yourself up for success, but also just for the longevity of things. Because, I mean, we take a beating, you know, you want to, so I think um, just learning the little tips and the tricks of moving hose by yourself, you know, dropping rock the right way, venting effectively, all, all these things, they all are all things that you learn from messing around. With the, I mean, yeah, you learn doing them on jobs and everything like that. But a lot of it is basically you, you, you're in a job and you realize, oh, crap, that didn't work that well. Well, let's go. Let's go see how we can do this a little bit better. How can we do this a little more effectively? How can we? get to the seat of that fire faster. How can we get to the victim faster and get them out more efficiently? Um, and all that comes from being on the training ground. Uh, well, you know, to touch on what you were talking about, that's what we always said when you came out of the Academy. Okay. You've learned what the book says, forget all of that. Now it's time to really learn because you're in a controlled environment where you're mm-hmm. in, in training and now you're out here with three, maybe four people on the rig. And this is what we've got to do. We got to stretch to the fourth floor. You know, you don't have all these excess people to stretch. And you have to learn the, the tricks of the job that make your job easier. It's always been work smarter, not harder. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and- you talk after you were talking pulling ceiling and, this was one of my pet peeves because being a short guy, I always carried a six foot hook, multi hook. And if I said, why have you got such a long hook? I said, because I don't have to raise my sho- my arms above my shoulders. I got a BA on my, kept my hook right at waistline and only moved my hands up and down six or eight inches instead of mm-hmm. trying to reach over my head to pull ceiling. Yep. My shoulders never got tired, but that it was working smarter, not harder. Yep. And it's just just a small trick of the trade. You know, one of the things I I picked up, and I, our gears changed tremendously. The leather boots, everything are wonderful. I love the leather boots. They fit, you know, they're not sliding all over your feet. And actually, I bought my first, my own pair before the county even uh, gave them to us. But in New York, they said one time that the guys would take a carabiner and hook their day boots together and throw them over their shoulder if they had to walk up a lot of stairs because one pound on your feet was like five pounds on your back. Mm. And, um, yeah, so I picked it up and, you know, just different little things and say, okay, well, if you got a shoe that fits well, it's going to be easier to, you know, tromp up five floors, four mm-hmm. floors or, or whatever. So that's, you know, the boots have all changed. So, that, you know, it was good. 
And a lot and that, of that right there is something that, you know, that if it, something like that doesn't get passed down to the, to the guy beneath them, you know, how, how's anybody going to know? And I mean, other than, I guess, experiencing it for themselves and trying it out, but experience is a very expensive commodity, right? You know, that's, that's another reason why I've been wanting to do this, I guess, you know, document, I guess, documentary podcast. I don't, I don't know what you'd call it, but that's another reason why I've been wanting to do this. It's just so little things like that. Yeah. You know, how much do they apply to us nowadays? Like something like that. I'm not entirely sure, but you know, maybe there's somebody that ends up listening to this. That's like, huh, I have to go up 10 floors all the time and nobody's ever even, you know, talked maybe about I, something like that. Good fitting maybe, shoes. You know, maybe you should spend your, I mean, if, you know, a lot of departments still issue the rubber boots, which don't fit well. Maybe you should spend your, some of your own money to buy some good fitting leather boots that mm-hmm. will help you in your job. You know, that type of thing, you know, it's just a lesson, you know, learned, yep. you know, is you pick up bits and pieces everywhere you're at. Hey guys, it's Austin again, real quick. I just wanted to thank you for listening to this first episode and ask you all to go and like and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you can find podcasts. We can also be found on Instagram and Facebook at Smoke Eater Pod. Be sure to like and share and let your friends know and let us know what you think. We'll see you all next week.